All right, let's um, go ahead and open our Bibles this morning. We're going to be in Revelation 14. It's good to be back in this book. Um, if I have to suddenly run from the pulpit uh, this morning, I'll be back. I might need to vomit or something else. I'm kind of a little bit under the weather. Picked up, I think, what everybody else has had going around. But uh, I'd love it if I could vomit right now. Feel better. So hopefully it won't come out while I'm preaching. I'll, if I run to the bathroom, I'll be back. So... <laughs> Oh, I think it's been back in June was the last time we were in this book. I had wanted to finish chapter 14 and I never did, never really got to do a verse by verse message on the last um, six verses of the chapter, so that's what we're going to do today. Just for the sake of review, um, we're coming to the end of a parenthesis in the narrative in terms of the chronological advancing of the narrative that starts back um, in chapter 12 with uh, these scenes that John sees in heaven. It's a parenthesis looking back across history at the great war that has always been between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Israel and Satan, his hatred for them. Satan's purposes, if he could, has always been to stop or to staunch out Israel to prevent Messiah from coming and crushing his head. And then once Messiah has come, to stand Israel to vent from being able to return again and rescue her. The church plays into that drama as a peculiar institution in God's program, Jew and Gentile together, the bride of Christ. And Satan equally hates the church. And that's why we shouldn't be yoking up or fraternizing with the children of the devil. As the church, we think that we can promote or foster peace in the world. We can foster uh, um, a stand against racism and against misogyny and all these words people use. They probably don't even know what it means. If I hear the word misogyny again, I will vomit. People don't even know what that means. And they use the word because they, they heard some fool on the news media use it. And they just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. We as Christians don't have any business fraternizing with these people. Christians have no business marching alongside the vermin that marched in Boston yesterday. They have no business fraternizing with these people. These people are children of the devil. They're anarchists. They don't care about racism and equality and love. The love they preach always results in violence. I saw yesterday where there was a man carrying an Israeli flag. Wasn't bothering anybody and they attacked him. Beat him up. It's because he was carrying an Israeli flag. I saw Israeli flags around the monument, the Lee Monument, in Charlottesville watching the live this week. And everybody says it was KKK and neo-Nazis. Neo-Nazis don't carry Israeli flags, people. They don't do it. And so what our president said on Tuesday in the press conference that everybody's been crucifying him for was absolutely 100% correct. And I stand with it. It was correct. Praise God for somebody who will call out evil where it was. But we have no business as Christians fraternizing with the children of the devil because the devil hates us. He hates the church. He hates Israel. We have no business fraternizing with that. 
The only reason any Christian should go to one of these marches is to go down there and lift his voice up like a trumpet and preach the gospel and warn the people about God's judgment. I can understand Christians wanting to go out and take a stand and stand in support of free speech. That's something Baptists have done for ages. Those that have promoted religious liberty in an environment where men are free to speak as they feel right, where men are free to accept the truth or reject it, it is an environment in which the gospel could best thrive. And it doesn't result in people coming to Christ because they have to or because they're afraid not to, like in the state church systems of the Middle Ages, that Roman Catholic devil that rose up. But Baptists have long taken a stand for liberty of conscience. and There's a reason to support that today. There's a reason to support um, and to take a stand for the destruction and anarchy that leads to the tearing down of historical monuments. The Bible says, don't remove the ancient landmark that thy fathers have set. It says that there in Proverbs. Why do we not want to remove ancient landmarks? Because when we move memorials and monuments to history, we remove the lessons that they teach us. And when we look, we've already kicked out the greatest teacher there is. That's the Bible. We've already kicked it out. The second greatest teacher we have in this life is history. The record of men's failures before a holy God. And when we throw that out, we've got nothing left. All we've got is anarchy. If we hadn't already thrown the Bible out of our society and out of our schools, maybe it wouldn't be as big of a deal, but we've thrown out the great teacher and now we're trying to tear down his assistant or his teacher's aid, per se. The record of history is the proof that the Bible's true. It's a record of men's failure. It doesn't matter what situation man is in, whether he's in innocence in the Garden of Eden or whether he's under the iron rule of Christ in the millennium, he will always fail. And that's what history shows us. But even in the midst of failure, even in the midst of terrible, terrible war and judgment, history records providences, the kind providences of God. History records God doing things, light in the darkness, revival, salvation. When we tear down history, we remove God's providences or the testimonies thereof. And we've got nothing left. So I understand why Christians should support these things and speak out for them, but we have no business fraternizing with the other side. That rabble that marched in Boston yesterday was homosexuals, lesbians, trannies, anarchists, true Nazis, anti-Semites, people that hate the gospel, people that hate the church, and then those caught up in it. You know, they had this big interfaith service in Boston on Friday where all of these Jews and Christians and different people, homos and lesbians, they're always caught up in that too, got together and sang praises and, and had an interfaith service to celebrate diversity. Christian has no business being involved in anything interfaith. No business being involved in anything interfaith. There is no interfaith in the Scriptures. Paul says there's one Lord, one God, one faith, one baptism. You have no business being involved in interfaith. That is the worship of Antichrist. These people are rolling out the red carpet. Antichrist. The best thing we can do in the midst of all this madness is keep preaching the Gospel. We don't need to go protest. We don't need to go protest. That's what the world does. We need to preach. We need to preach. 
probably some of the best advice that could be given outside the Scriptures for how we should conduct ourselves when all of this matters. I know it makes you, it makes me angry. God forbid the vermin like what marched in Boston yesterday would come to hickory. Because there's people, we're not going to stand for that. I read where a young man had just gotten a haircut and went into a parking lot somewhere. I don't know where it was here in America. And he was getting out of the car and I guess his haircut was kind of short in the back and a little long on top and it might have resembled the way the Nazis used to cut their hair. He was getting out of the car and was attacked. You're one of those Nazis. And guys tried to stab him just because of his haircut. I wish, I wish that would happen to me. Oh, I wish it would happen to me. Give me an excuse. Just give me an excuse to do what I've trained for 25 years to do. I mean, it makes us angry. We want to see justice. There's people here in the book of Revelation that want to see justice. We need to wait and pray and be patient for that justice because no amount of justice we could ever exact against this evil will match the wine press of the wrath of God. Some good advice we could all heed about how to handle ourselves and we see all these things and it makes us so angry and it's hard not to be. There is a righteous anger. Anybody who teaches you that, that Matthew 5.22 says that all anger is sin is misappropriating the Scriptures. I was watching some live video feed from the protest in Charlottesville last week and I heard a street preacher out there. Now this was after the police had shut down the rally around the Robert E. Lee Memorial and they were forcing these people to leave and march down an avenue where they were surrounded by the anti-protesters on both sides. Those wicked police wanted a confrontation. That wicked governor in Virginia. Virginia's betrayed its star on the Confederate flag. It's betrayed it. Shame on them. Wicked place. That mess is going to come down here eventually and it's going to be all around us. We deserve it. Can't complain to God, that's for sure. But I heard this preacher out there preaching against those that were being marched down the hill and he made the statement, all anger is sin. The Bible teaches all anger is sin. That's a lie, my friend. That's a lie. It says in Matthew 5.22, He that is angry with his brother without a cause. There is a righteous anger. If all anger is sin, then Jesus is a sinner because in the Gospel of Mark, it says that when Jesus looked around at the hard hearts of the people who should have known the truth, those self-righteous hypocrites, religious leaders, that said He looked on them with anger. There is a righteous anger. We shouldn't be going around just flippantly calling people fools and idiots with no reason. But the without a cause there in Matthew 5.22 is about the anger, the raka, and thou fool. There's a righteous anger and there's a righteous time to say fool. Thou fool. Just like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 about those people denying the resurrection. Thou fool. Jesus Christ to the rich man, thou fool. Tonight your soul is required of thee. So let's be careful how we twist the Scriptures. There is a righteous anger. There is a, right, a time to righteously decry and speak out against foolishness and wickedness. There's a time for that. But we need remember that no amount of justice that could ever be initiated even comes close to that of the righteous judge. We're not called to execute justice. We are called to declare the truth and let the judge execute 
We're not called to be vigilantes or anarchists. We're called to do things decently and in order. And that means even when we go out, we should, everything we say and do should be decent and in order. And what we see going on in our country today is not decent and in order. Some real good advice we would do well to heed came from one of the men that these crowds hate so much they don't know anything about him. These dummies that go to college don't know anything about him. They probably couldn't even tell you where one battle took place in the Civil War. Couldn't tell you anything. Just ranting and raving. The Bible says in, 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 in 2 Peter that those who go out and scream and holler about things they don't understand are brute beasts and they're made to be taken and destroyed by God. That's what God's Word says. I didn't say it. God's Word did. Not made to be taken and destroyed by us, but made to be taken and destroyed by God. But one of the men that's hated so much and they know nothing about him, General Robert E. Lee, probably one of the greatest military commanders this country has ever seen. And these generals that surround our president who undoubtedly feed him, I believe, bad advice, these generals like General Kelly and General Mattis and General McMaster, they wouldn't be worthy to lead Robert E. Lee's horse. They wouldn't be worried, worthy to carry his notebook. All they're concerned about is making sure trannies can get sex changes in the military. You want to know why so many trannies want to Because they can go into it and get a free sex change instead of paying untold thousands of dollars out of their pocket. These men wouldn't be the highest general in the land today and worthy to do the laundry of somebody like Robert E. Lee. But these are some things Robert E. Lee said in 1869. This would be four years after Appomattox. He said, this is the best advice we, at Christians, we as Christians could heed outside the Scriptures. It says, we poor sinners need to come back from our wanderings to seek pardon through the all-sufficient merits of our Redeemer. And we need to pray earnestly by the power of the Holy Spirit to give us a precious revival in our hearts and among the unconverted. Look, a lot of us need to look in the mirror before we start talking about anybody else. And we need to realize that God alone can fix these problems. And if He doesn't, we have no place to complain. No place to murmur like Israel in the desert. Our country was in a terrible place in the early 1700s, morally speaking, just like Europe. God brought a wonderful revival when it seemed least likely to happen. God did that for the people of Nineveh. There's a child could grant a reprieve and bring a spiritual awakening to this country in the midst of all this madness. We at least ought to pray for it. Let's channel our anger into prayer for revival and let's use every opportunity we have when we go out to speak truth. Just speak some form of truth because truth can't be found in the colleges. It can't be found on the news media. And the average person working in the grocery store or whatever, if they're not in God's Word and they're not in a good church, they're not going to have truth. They're not exposed to it. So when we go out, let's just speak truth. Let's speak about the problems of today. Even if it doesn't lead into a situation where we can declare the gospel completely. Speak truth. And let's take this advice. This whole country needs to come back from its wanderings and seek pardon and forgiveness. I'm praying specifically 
that God will lead our president to, make, to, to declare a national day of fasting and repentance to the God of the Bible, like Lincoln did during the war, like Jefferson Davis did during the war, like our early presidents did before the Second Great Awakening. I'm just praying specifically that God will lead him to go public, whether it's through Twitter or whatever he wants to do, and, say, and call the nation to fasting and repentance to the God of the Bible. Let's pray that. Look what happens. I know a lot of this stuff makes you angry. It makes me angry. It makes me angry to see the testimonies of God-fearing men trampled in the dust. They may be dead, but that makes me angry. It makes me angry to see that from my fellow believer. But there's one whose vengeance is far more effective and final than ours could ever be, and that's the one that treads the wine press of the wrath of Almighty God. Payday someday. Let's take comfort in that. And let's be busy about the gospel while there's still time. Here in chapter 14, this great parenthesis we have, the age-old conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, we have a heavenly campaign. The dragon is kicked out of heaven. And we've got the earthly campaign where he goes after the remnant of her seed, Israel. And we learn about the rise of Antichrist, his chief general and the uh, beast out of the uh, earth, the false prophet, and then we get into the victory campaign, which is chapter 14 of that war. We have some snapshots. I've compared it to, to World War II as we've been teaching, and I've shown you some images that speak a thousand words in regard to World War II. On that note, if it hadn't been for the grandchildren of Confederate veterans who stormed the beaches of Normandy, marched up to Lee, marched across North Africa. Go study the numbers in terms of the casualties and the American troops that were used in World War II. And you'll find the majority came from the South. And you'll find these were grandchildren. A lot of these were grandchildren of the Confederate veterans that everybody calls traitors and hates today. If it hadn't been for these grandchildren of Confederate veterans, we'd all be speaking German. Some of us would have been made a lampshade on a table at some point. Or none of, some of us may have never been born at all. So people, people are fools. They really are. Speak things they understand not. The Bible says people that do that stuff are like wild animals meant to be taken and destroyed, just like a wolf that comes in amongst the sheep. There's one way to handle it. One way to handle a coyote that comes down here in the chickens. You take it and you destroy it. You shoot it. Jesus is the shepherd, and he'll handle the wild beasts that come into his flock. But we got down, we've got these four snapshots. The first five verses, a snapshot of assembly. We see the 144,000 atop the rubble of Mount Zion with their Messiah who's delivered them. We get into verses 6 through 12, the second snapshot, one of judgment. We compared that to um, the image from World War II of the, the boats landing at Normandy. The first snapshot we compared to uh, the image above Iwo Jima, the Mount Suribachi there. The uh, snapshot of judgment, we have three angelic messengers. We talked about the everlasting gospel, the four forms of the gospel in the New Testament. We talked about uh, the second angel that preaches the fall of Babylon or the fall of the world system. And then the third, which declares the doom of the beast worshipers. Those that receive the mark of the beast cannot be saved. It's impossible. It's over. Their doom is sealed. Just like a Christian who receives the Holy Spirit, his salvation is sealed for all eternity. Nothing can ever take away 
the salvation that comes when a man truly believes and is born again and is sealed by the Holy Spirit. In the same way, those that take the mark of the beast, the anti-spirit, are sealed for all eternity. They're doomed. There is no salvation for these. They're devils, doomed, made to be taken and destroyed. And then we get into verse 13, the snapshot of rest. We talked about those headlines that went out about victory for the Allies in World War II, technically before the world even the war even ended. Um, there comes a time in conflict when victory is so assured that it can be announced before it officially is. And um, technically, the Russians and the Japanese have never ended the war. Russia joined the war toward the end against Japan, and technically that's never officially ended. So in a sense, World War II's never completely ended. Um, we had that snapshot of rest where the remnant that were left here on earth are told, you know, go ahead and die. Those that die hereafter, that's a blessing, and you can rest from your labors. Comes a point when it's just better to leave it to the Lord and die. Stop fighting, let Him do it. Now we get into the fourth and final snapshot in this parenthesis. I read through it last week. It's a snapshot of reaping. And the image that I used from World War II was the famous shot that shows the mushroom cloud. The photo of the mushroom cloud rising above Hiroshima. And um, we talked about it. We, it. There's a reaping here. There's a reaping. And this image here can be several things. I mean, we, could have, we have two reapings. We have a harvest and a vintage. This could be a contrast between two types of gatherings. Or it could be a restatement of one and the same. We talked about how this could be a contrast between the rapture, a gathering that takes place before the tribulation, and a contrast contrasted with Armageddon, a gathering that takes place at the end of the tribulation. Perhaps this harvest here at the beginning are the tribulation saints, those connected to verse 13, and invited to die in the Lord versus the heathen that are gathered together at Armageddon to be destroyed. Or maybe this is one and the same. Joel refers to a harvest as being the Gentile nations. And then Isaiah speaks of Israel as God's vineyard. Maybe this is one and the same. The judgment of the Gentiles and the gathering of, of, of the Jews for judgment. Not the, not the remnant, but the wicked Jews for judgment. Uh, or perhaps we're looking at the Jewish tares versus Antichrist and his armies. One and the same. So I think there's some different possibilities here. I wouldn't take a dogmatic position on what this is referring to specifically. I have an opinion based upon my study of Scripture, and we'll look at that today. But uh, And there's an element that uh, it could be a both and. All of it's true. Regardless, this last snapshot ought to be a source of comfort for us in these terrible times because what it emphasizes more than anything else, a loud eternal truth is consummated here in these last six verses. And that's the truth of divine karma. We've spoken about that. Divine karma is different than worldly karma. Worldly karma is by chance. Divine karma is the principle of reaping and sowing. It's by divine decree. It involves no respect of persons. We see this in Galatians 6. A man's going to reap what he sows. Payday, someday. So in these last six verses, let's look at them. 
payday someday. That's a source of comfort for us. All of this madness we see, payday someday. So we'll start at verse 14. And again, this is just review because I've been gone so long and I kind of got stuck here at the end of the last message. And I looked and beheld a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So we have a reaping here, a harvest. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So this is a second gathering. The first gathering is the Son of Man with a sharp sickle. He gathers the harvest of the earth. Here we have an angel. Sharp sickle, he gathers the cluster of the earth, the vine of the earth. And the angel, verse 19, thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Notice that in this first gathering, it just says the earth was reaped. There is no corresponding uh, uh, follow-up about reaped or, uh, of wrath. Here we have the earth was reaped, the vine was gathered, and it was cast into the winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. A thousand six hundred furlongs is an old system of measurement. In Roman times, that's approximately two hundred miles today. What we see described here in short, is the answer to the prayers and questions of the martyred saints that are under the altar. Remember back the fifth seal judgment where you had the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the first four seal judgments? Then the fifth seal judgment is a great throng of martyrs down through the ages who have lost their lives because of their faith in Christ and their testimony. And they're gathered around the altar and they're asking, Lord, how long will you wait to avenge our blood upon those dwelling upon the earth? And they're told to rest and wait a little season because it's appointed for more to join their throng. We, of course, know these as the tribulation saints, but here we have the answer to their question. How long, O oh Lord? The answer's right here, now. It's time. And the answer to those questions that the martyred saints ask under the fifth seal is not a period. It's an exclamation point. When God chooses to answer the questions that people have wrestled with from time immemorial, His answer is not a period. It's an exclamation point. You know, a lot of us would sit, a lot of people sit and question, well, if there's a good God out there, why would He allow children to be raped or kidnapped and put into child sex trade? Why would He allow all these terrible things to happen? There can't be a good God or there wouldn't be all of this evil in the earth. What people fail to realize is um, when the director steps on the stage, the play's over. 
when God does act like you think He should right now, that means the play is over. It's over for you, and it's over for everyone else. When the director steps on the stage, it's over. Here he steps on the stage, and it's over for every form of wickedness. God sees all, but He waits. He doesn't wait because He's okay with evil. He waits because He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But when He steps on the stage, like right here, it's over. Before we actually look at these verses, I want you to turn to a parable in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus tells a parable here that I think describes exactly what we see here at the end of Revelation 14. It's a harvest. This is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Um, if I could just get Daniel, I'm going to let you read for me. Matthew 13, 24 through 30. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came in unto them, Sir, didst not thou know good seed, or didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, Lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So, we have two gatherings in this parable. It's right there at the end. There's two gatherings. The, reaper gather the, the reapers gather the tares... And they bind them to be burned. And then they gather the wheat for God's barn. In Revelation 14, we have two gatherings. We have the gathering of the harvest. And then we have the gathering of the vintage. So in both passages, there's two gatherings. One unto salvation. One unto destruction. Or at least it's clear one is unto salvation, one is unto destruction here in Matthew 13. Revelation 14, I believe we have signs that the same uh, is discussed here. Let's read a couple of other passages that I think are important to consider when we think about parables. What, were the purpose, what was the purpose of the parables that Jesus taught? People often say, just like they make stupid statements, unbiblical statements, all anger is sin... They'll say Jesus taught in parables so the people could more easily understand His teachings. That is not biblical. Simply not biblical. There's a lot of things that are not biblical. In fact, we learn here in this parable that a church sign that reads everyone you meet is a child of God is false. We learn that here in this parable because there's children of the kingdom and children of the devil according to Jesus Himself right here. So when somebody says we're all the children of God, that's a lie straight from hell. That's an antichrist lie. 
That's what the people having their little interfaith service uh, yesterday or, or Friday, whenever it was, were, were touting. Of course, everybody's God's children in their minds except for those who believe the Bible, whether they're white, black, red, or yellow. Don't believe the, oh, we love everybody garbage. Some of the most racist people you'll ever find are the ones that were marching against those who stood for free speech yesterday. Those are some of the most racist people you'll ever find, some of the most anti-Semitic people you'll ever find, as proved by attacking a man with an Israeli flag. I think the one that holds the record for using the N-word the most in front of other people is Hillary Clinton. Racist. That's just virtue signaling. Friends, don't get caught up in that. Virtue signaling can't hide your wicked heart. It'll eventually come out. Just because you make some statement on Facebook, that means absolutely nothing to God. Absolutely nothing. There's another way I could phrase that. Somebody said one time, but I won't. I'm behind the pulpit. Let's look at a couple of passages about the parables. Let's see what the Bible says the reason for the parables are. Matthew, if you'll just go a little bit uh, back in chapter 13 to verses 11 through 16. And then I'd like to have Brother Bob, if you'll read Luke 8, verse 10. And then, uh, Eric, I'll ask you to read Isaiah 6, 9 through 12. What are the purpose? Why did Jesus teach in parables? These are things we've talked about before, but it's worth reviewing. It's always worth going back to the stream and taking a drink. It's because you learn something one time from the Scriptures doesn't mean we shouldn't go back and review it. Matthew 13, 11 through 16. He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them is not given. For whosoever, whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, to him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, and neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which said, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand. And seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see in your ears for I should have had him read verse 10 because that's where the disciples flat out asked Jesus, why are you speaking in parables? And he tells it very plain here because it's given to you to understand these things but not to them. And then Jesus goes back and quotes a very important prophecy in the Old Testament about Israel's blindness that I'm going to have Eric read here in a minute. Luke 8.10 But to others in parables that see and they might see and hear, they might not understand. Why did Jesus te teach in parables? To be a stumbling block. I don't know if that's the right word to use, but it wasn't to make it more eas God's truth more easily understood. God's truth, plainly spoken, was already here in the Scriptures. The Jewish people had the Tanakh. It's very clear about Messiah. But they refused to see it. 
And so Jesus taught in parables to confuse them. There's, God is not the author of confusion in the church. Because when it comes to the followers of Christ, we're given to see. So He's never the author of confusion in the churches, it says there in Paul's epistle. But God judges people with confusion of face. They turn their backs on God when they should have known better as Israel of old. And as Daniel himself acknowledged as he prayed for the nation, we are under the judgment of confusion from God. That's where we are today. That's why Jesus taught in parables to fulfill the prophecy that the Jews would be blinded and confused because they had set their hearts against God and His truth. That goes back to what I've said before. You mess with God's book, you mess with His plain truth, He'll mess with your mind so you can't understand truth. That's why I think it's so important for us to labor to get copies of the Scriptures, be it the Tanakh, the New Testament, or both into the hands of Jewish people today. It's so important because the day's coming when the church is taken in the tribulation that Antichrist will turn his back on the Jews and the world will hate them with a hatred that far exceeds what we see for Confederate monuments today. And there won't be Bible. There won't be Bibles available to look at online. All that stuff will be pulled down. So the only source they'll have of truth in those days is God's Word. And hopefully by getting copies into their hands now, we're sowing seeds that will be used to wake people up in the tribulation where God's Word won't easily be found. Something to think about. Isaiah 6. This is what Jesus is referring to. Paul later quotes this passage as well. So we know this prophecy, this judgment was still in effect in Jesus' day and it was still in effect in Paul's day. And it's still in effect largely during the church age. This is the message that Isaiah was to preach, one of judgment. He's the one that said, Here, my Lord, send me. And God said to go out and preach, and I'm going to make them blind. I'm going to make them deaf. They may have eyes, but they won't be able to see. They may have ears, but they won't be able to hear. And then it goes on to say, Did you read through verse 12? Keep going, because it tells us how long this judgment will last. Until when? Until there's a great forsaking. We know that the Jews have to... They've been gathered back into the land. Going back, starting back in 1948. Mobs and mobs and mobs have come back to the land. But there's going to be a great forsaking when everything they built is going to be ripped out from under them and they're going to have to flee for safety. We read about that in Revelation chapter 12. This judgment is upon Israel until the days that we're reading about here in Revelation. Until... The cities are wasted and the land is desolate of its people. 
until Antichrist drives them. You know, that's the sad thing. All of these things have been built up and we rejoice to see prophecy fulfilled and the Jew back in the land, but it's all going to be taken away. It's going to require that to happen to wake up the nation. So this judgment is still in effect. But praise God, that veil, that blindness can be taken away in Christ. Paul's an example of that. Despite that veil, it was taken away in Christ. So that's why we continue to preach the gospel. We don't take an attitude like, oh, the Jews have rejected Christ and they're blind. We may as well work, go share the gospel with somebody else. No. It doesn't matter who you are, the veil of blindness can be taken away in Christ. Paul never stopped preaching to the Jews, even though he was the preacher of the, to the Gentiles. He always went to the Jews. He said in Acts, testifying both to the Jews and to the Gentiles, uh, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The very first missions offering the Gentile church took up in Acts was for Jews in Jerusalem. We need to remember the Jews. The gospel, despite their blindness, has always been to them first. And that veil can be taken away in Christ. But there's a blindness on the nation that won't be removed until the days in which we're speaking. And that's why Jesus spoke in parables. His parables had to be interpreted sometimes for the disciples. He was freely willing to tell His disciples what He was talking about. But He didn't do this for the crowds. We read this parable of the wheat and the tares here in Matthew 13, and then we see four more parables about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13. Going back, he talks about the peril of the sower, and then he gives an explanation to his disciples. Then we have the wheat and the tares. We have the mustard seed. We have the leaven. And then he goes back and explains to his disciples the parable of the wheat and the tares. Back in Matthew 13, the parable that we read was 24 through 30 what Daniel read, and then we get down to verse 36. He tells a few more parables. He says that Jesus sent the multitudes away and went into the house, and His disciples came and asked, or said, Declare unto us the parable of the wheat and the tares. So explain it to us. So the multitudes were sent away, and then Jesus explains or interprets what this parable is to mean. The sower of the good seed, He says, is the Son of Man. So the Son of Man, according to Jesus right here, is involved in the harvest. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. The tares are the children of the devil. Not everyone's a child of God, my friends. That's a wicked lie. That's an, a lie of Antichrist. There's children of the kingdom and there's children of the devil. Those marching around out here calling for anarchy are children of the devil. Those telling you there's another way to God but Jesus are children of the devil. Those having interfaith services and thinking they can worship God that way are children of the devil. Mormons and JWs that come to your door and try to lead you astray are children of the devil. It was great down in Huaraz. I heard a knocking at the gate one morning. So I went to the window and looked down. We were on the third floor and there was two ladies down there and they were saying, you know, would you come down? We'd like to talk to you about the Bible. So I just said really loudly in Spanish, I asked loudly from my window, are you Jehovah's Witnesses? And they said, yes. And I said, well, I don't need to come down and discuss the Bible with you. You don't believe the Bible. You follow a false Jesus, a Jesus that's not God. Your doctrine is false, and you need to repent. 
and they got kind of squirrely and I asked them to look up a verse in the scriptures and they tried to beat around the bush and I just kept giving them the word of God and they finally just left. <laughs> but it was great because it was transpiring out in the street where people could hear. <laughs> it was great. But uh, children of the, of, the, of the kingdom and children of the devil. The enemy, it says, Jesus says here, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. So we have a harvest at the end of the world. What we see in Revelation 14 is a harvest and a vintage at the end of the world. The reapers are the angels. And then guess what doesn't need an interpretation between the parable and Jesus' explanation? Fire. Jesus doesn't tell us the fire means anything else but fire. Fire's fire. You know, the reapers, he says, are referring to the angels. But he doesn't say fire is referring to this. Fire is fire. So the tares are gathered to be burned. Hellfire. Fire is fire, my friends. There's no reason to try to explain it away. Hellfire is hellfire in the Scriptures. It's literal and it's plain. And it's eternal. So here we have in this parable the kingdom... The gathering together of the wheat into the barn or God's kingdom with the gathering together of the tares for the lake of fire. Two gatherings. Two harvests. In verse 30 of chapter 13, it says this, Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Two gatherings. Tares to be burned, wheat to be stored in the barn. I believe that same contrast we see here in Revelation 14. In fact, I believe Revelation 14, the last six verses are the fulfillment of what Jesus is talking about here. The harvest of the earth is the wheat gathered into the barn. The vintage, the harvest of the grapes, is the gathering together for destruction. That being the case, since in this parenthesis we're not in a chronology, we're spanning all of human history. We're looking back over the war, the great war between the dragon and the woman, the heavenly campaign, the earthly campaign, the victory campaign. What I think we have here in Revelation 14, 16-20 is... The gathering of the saints at the rapture contrasted with the gathering of the wicked at a place called Armageddon. In chapter 4, verse 1, we see John at the end of the church age, after the letters to the seven churches is caught up into heaven. He sees a door up in heaven. He hears a voice that says, come up here. And he's immediately up in heaven in the throne room. And in the throne room, we have elders with white robes and golden crowns singing praise to the Lamb, for Thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's made us kings and priests. The church is in heaven. Okay? The rapture is very plain. In Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians, it's very plain in 1 Corinthians 15. It's very plain that it's something other than the second coming of Christ that can't take place until Israel acknowledges its transgression and calls for Him, Hosea 5.15. Here we have a contrast of two gatherings. Looking back on the rapture, which is chronologically before the tribulation, and looking forward to Armageddon, which happens at the end of the tribulation. 
So we have a contrast between what takes place just before this period begins and what takes place at the end. And then as we get into chapters 16, 17, 18, and 19, that reaping of the vintage of Armageddon is described in detail, exactly what it looks like. So I believe we have a contrast here and a subtle reference to the rapture of the saints. And I think when we exegete the passages here, verse by verse, we'll see. Verse 14, I looked and beheld a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man. So we know the Son of Man is the reaper for gathering a wheat. I mean, the Son of Man is the, um, the sower. The sower. In Jesus' parable, we just read, Here we have the Son of Man on a white cloud, having on His head a golden crown, and in His hand a sharp sickle. There's no doubt that this is Jesus. Jesus is the first reaper here. He's on a cloud. He's called the Son of Man. And He's got a sickle, a sharp sickle, and a golden crown. The clouds are associated throughout Scripture with the coming of Messiah. They're paired with Him. Let's read a couple of verses. Jason, if you'll read Daniel 7.13. What happened to my dad? Oh, okay. Uh, Ronnie, if you'll read, this is a little tough one. Nahum 1 verse 3. Uh, Tony, if you'll read Zephaniah 1 verse 15. And then Jim, I'll have you read Matthew 24 30. Matthew, Matthew 26, 64. And Daniel 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Jesus Christ throughout the Scriptures, the coming of Messiah is coupled with imagery of the clouds. Daniel 7, 13. The Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Jesus quoted that passage when He was on trial before the high priest in Jerusalem. They said, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And He said, you say so, but I'll tell you this, the day is coming when you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And that's what threw them into a rage. Because they knew this passage. He was quoting this passage and appropriating it to himself. And the Jew knows that this refers to Messiah. It wasn't until Stephen, when he was preaching before the Jews, he got frustrated with them because they weren't paying attention and called him stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and mind, always resisting the Holy Ghost. They didn't fly into a rage, though, until he said he looked up and saw the Son of Man standing with the clouds beside, standing at the right hand of God. That's when they flew into a rage. It's the Son of Man is Messiah coming with the clouds of heaven and that's exactly what's described here in Revelation 14. Sitting on a cloud. Nahum 1.3 The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all equip the wicked. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust <laughs> The clouds are the dust of God's feet. Here we have the Son of Man standing on a cloud or sitting on a cloud. Clouds like the dust of His feet. Jesus is God. He's slow to anger, but when He's angry, 
It's a furious storm. Even in the storms that blow on this earth, it says God has His way. We're too blind to acknowledge that even the storms are God's judgment. God has His way in the whirlwind and the storm or the clouds or the dust of His feet. But we think we're so smart. We believe in science. We're so smart. People don't even know what science is anymore. Don't even know what it is. Couldn't do a scientific experiment if their lives depended upon it. They're too busy teaching children in the schools that it's okay to have two mommies and two daddies and it's okay to be a boy but yet be a girl and vice versa. People don't even know how to do science anymore. They're just turned into brainwashed social justice warriors. Daniel's talking about how we went down to the parade the other day and just to kind of see what would happen and using it as an opportunity to preach the gospel. That stuff you read in the newspapers or saw in the local news was fake news. There was an incident where a guy tried to come out and pepper spray some of the Confederate reenactors and the police took him down immediately. The parade didn't even pause. Nobody even knew what happened. There wasn't boss out there like the stupid liars out of Charlotte on their newscast said. It's a lie. Trying to stir people up. But what's sickening, more sickening than anything else, is this man, this man was probably in his 50s. He had his hat pulled down over his face. You couldn't see him. That's what a coward, a coward wears a mask. If a coward's so proud of what he believes in, why has he got to wear a mask? KKK were always cowards for wearing masks. But these Antifas and these left-wing fools that put masks on their face, they're just as big a cowards. They're big and tough in a crowd. But boy, they'd run, they'd run and hide. Pee all over themselves. They were by themselves. One of these days, people like that are going to mess with the wrong people. I can't understand why a 50-year-old guy would go up to about 10 or 12 big burly dudes with rifles reenacting a uh, as Confederate soldiers and try to spray them with a little can of pepper spray. Only stupidity does that. But what's sad, did you know that this man that went out there and tried to attack people with pepper spray just for wearing Confederate uniforms was the principal at East Burke High School in Morganton? He was the principal. I said he was the principal of both East Burke and some other school. I didn't know you could be principals of two schools. He retired back on June 30th, and he's been working in the bus garage until August when he's formally retiring. These are the people that are teaching children, even here in Catawba and Burke County in the public schools. People that would walk out on the street and try to pepper spray somebody because they're honoring local history. These are the people teaching children even here. Praise God that we have families in this church that teach their children at home. Even the Catawba County and Burke County schools aren't safe. Where do they find people like this to put as principals? Unbelievable to me. That man ought to be fired tomorrow and ought to never have access to children for what he demonstrated out there foolishness you have a right to go attack somebody because they hold a viewpoint a, they peacefully hold a viewpoint you don't agree with these are the people brainwashing our children in our schools and that's why Christians need to get their children out of the public schools get them out of the public schools stop spending every dime you have to send them to state universities where they brainwash them and where they're threatened until they conform to the masses. Why would you waste your money sending your kids to something like that? 
Praise God, there's still opportunities at community colleges and things to get a real education, but how long will we have that? If you got a moron like this as a principal over here at East Burke High School. It was so great to watch the police tackle that guy and haul him off. He got no publicity. Before he even could do anything, they carried him off. Praise God for the Newton police. They didn't stand by and allow that garbage like these, uh, uh, as far as I'm concerned, traitors to local law enforcement over in Durham. They didn't, they didn't stand by. They, 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 what they did was great. They actually thanked us for preaching out there. So praise God for the Newton Police Department and the way they handled that. But these are the type of people teaching the children in the public schools. Unbelievable to me. Of course, the media, you had to dig a little bit to find that out because it was not put out there. But that's exactly who that was. Not just some nutcase, not some guy that got out of a mental ward, but somebody that was a principal at one of our local high schools. Unbelievable. Man, I think I just lost uh, what I was talking about. Wow. Zephaniah 115. Not only are clouds associated with the Son of Man, they're associated with the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Clouds are a sign of judgment. No mistake, when the church is removed from this earth by the Son of Man, that is a day of judgment. The last barrier that we have on this earth that restrains wickedness is the he or the who and the what that are talked about there in 2 Thessalonians 2. The who is the Holy Spirit, and the what is the church that's indwelt by that Spirit. And when the Son of Man sitting on a cloud harvests the earth and takes the church out of this world, that's the last bastion of protection for anyone on this planet. It's the last restrainer. In fact, Antichrist can't come and reveal himself until that restraint is removed. But even that, though glorious for us, is a day of thick darkness and clouds and gloominess for the world. The people that hate us so much don't realize that we're the last bastion of their protection. They don't realize that. That's why we've got to keep preaching the gospel. Pre keep preaching the gospel. Keep preaching the gospel. Matthew 24, 30. Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and it will cause the earth to mourn. Matthew 20, 64. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Go ahead and keep reading. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? So that's what set him off. The high priest ripped his clothes and then everybody's saying crucified because he equated himself with Messiah. He'd already proven very clearly that he was exactly who he said to be. Never tried to hide it. And they went into a rage. Son of man sitting on a cloud. This is Jesus the Christ in Revelation 14. No doubt about it. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 
Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen. The church, the dead in Christ, and those which alive and remain are caught up in the air to meet the Lord where? In the clouds. Because He's on the cloud. That's what He is here in Revelation 14. The Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man. This reminds me of what scared the mess out of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3 after he had thrown the three Hebrew children into the fiery furnace. Scared the mess out of him. He didn't see three people walking around in there. He saw four. And he said, the fourth was like unto the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Of course, God later used Nebuchadnezzar as a means, even though he was used to destroy the temple and carry the people of Israel captive, later he was used as a means to preserve them as a race. And he uh, put his faith in, God, in the God of the Bible. That becomes clear in chapter 4 and chapter... Uh, in chapter 4 when God tests him. So there's hope for even the most wicked of leaders. What we see as an instrument of judgment could very easily become an instrument of the preservation of the truth. We need to pray that for our president. There are some that claim that there's prayer and Bible study taking place in the White House. Some are claiming that the, 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 the president himself is a baby Christian and has actually confessed faith in Christ. And we need to be careful about scoffing at that stuff. So many people scoff at that and act as if that's impossible. Did they never read the Bible? Look what God did with Nebuchadnezzar. Look what He did with Cyrus. Look what He did with Paul of all people. Why do we scoff at stuff like that? doesn't mean it's necessarily true, but isn't that what we want? Shouldn't we be encouraged by that? Shouldn't we at least pray for Him? I hope it's true. We should pray for that. Son of man had on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Here the word for crown in the original language is the word would be pronounced Stephanus. Um, it, it's the crown of victory. Okay, there's two types of crown. We have the, the Stephanus and we have the diadem. The diadem is the crown of sovereign authority. And when we look in Revelation, when Christ comes at Armageddon, He's not wearing the Stephanus, the victory crown. He's wearing many crowns. They're diadems. Crowns of authority and sovereign rule. And so this Son of Man here has on the Stephanus, the victory crown. We also see the Stephanus in chapter 6, 1, the white horse rider, the imitator, the antichrist. He has on a golden crown. Just like what the Son of Man is described here. Victory. Conquering a bow without an arrow. Conquering through peace. Peace and love. Everything we see being hollered by the crowds and the throngs today. Peace and love while they violently attack others. That's Antichrist. His spirit is already working all over the world. Conquering through peace and love. It's all about love. It's never been the gospel message. There is no unity or in love without truth. None. But here we have the Son of Man with the Stephanus contrasted with the white horse rider in chapter 6, the Antichrist. This is the true victory crown, but yet it's other than what he's wearing when he returns in chapter 19. 
So that's, that's a subtle clue that this is a harvest other than the vintage or the wine press that we see later in this same chapter. It's a, set, it's a different gathering. It's a contrast. In Revelation 4, the 24 elders who represent the church have these same golden crowns. It says he has a sharp sickle. The word here refers to a scythe. A scythe for cutting wheat. A, a, a gathering hook. The word sharp has the same base in the original language as the word acid. It's a sharp sickle. It's meant to cut rapid and swift. He's seen here holding a scythe. What character is often portrayed holding a scythe? Death or the grim reaper. There ain't no grim reaper, my friends. Christ is the reaper here. He reaper. And the sharp weapon He has here separates. It can separate where we cannot. We can't know all the time who is a wheat, who's the wheat, who's the tares. But Christ can separate. The living Word can separate. The written Word can separate. What does Hebrews 4 tell us? That the Bible has the ability to divide between soul and spirit. So again, we have the ministry of the living Word and the written Word is almost one and the same. You can't believe and follow the living Word and not believe and follow the written Word. can't do that. Only fake Christians with a fake Christ who has no power to save say the Bible was just written by men and it has no authority. But He is the reaper and His sharp sickle divides. It divides between the wheat and the tares. It's difficult for us to know or to see. Some people we think are so godly. One, more, one day we wake up and they've forsaken everything that they've stood for. And we never know. And we blame ourselves. How could we not know? We're, we're not able to know. In Matthew 13, Jesus said, do not rip up the tares because you might pull up the wheat also. We'll decide it, it was divided at the end of time. So even in the parable... The reapers were told not to mess with the tares unless you accidentally pull up. We were never meant to be able to discern perfectly. It's difficult for us to know. That's why we're told to withdraw from those that walk disorderly. To turn them over to the Lord. Because He knows what they are. Lest we root up the wheat with the tares. We may not be able to see, but the reaper does. The one with the sharp sickle does. That's why we're told when we have disorder in the church and people claiming one thing and living another and sowing discord, we're to withdraw ourselves from them. That's biblical New Testament ministry. We're not to open the doors and just welcome everybody into the church. That's not why the church was established. The church is to, to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and then go out and preach the gospel. But when we've got disorder in our church, we're to withdraw ourselves from it. Praise God, this church has practiced biblical church discipline and been forced to. It's not fun, but it's what we have to do. Turn them over to the Lord because only His sickle can divide. Let's look at a couple of passages. Romans 16, 17, and 18. Bob, if you'll read that. And then let's look at 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and 7. Paul, if you'll read that passage. And then uh, Jim, 1 Corinthians 3.13.
go ahead. Whoever had the first one. Now I beseech you, brother, mark them which cause division and offense contrary to the doctrine which ye, ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speech deceive the heart of the simple. Pretty clear. We can't do God's job for him. We should be careful about trying to lest we pull up the wheat with the tares. But what we can is withdraw ourselves and turn them over to the Lord in the church. It's very clear here that those who use fair speeches <coughs> like we see today so often, all that feel-good stuff is meant to deceive. It's meant to deceive. Their God is not the Lord Jesus Christ. It's their own belly. And we've seen that. We, you know, there are people that are exactly like this. We've seen that. Spiritual anarchists. We've got the anarchists marching in the, marching in the streets and we've got the spiritual anarchists who don't want to be under any authority. Just do their own thing. And they know what God's will is and don't want to listen to any counsel. Those have to be... We have to withdraw from those and let God deal with them so that hopefully when the harvest comes, they're gathered into the barn, not gathered and bundled to be burned. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and 7. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Withdraw yourselves from those who claim to be brethren that walk disorderly, not according to the tradition. These people that come up with these new doctrines and these new interpretations and homo doesn't mean homo and lesbians getting married is all right with God. Stuff that's never been taught in all of church history by the church are guilty of not following the traditions. I'm not talking about tradition in the sense of the Catholic church and superstitions. There's a big difference between tradition and superstition. We're talking about what's been taught and understood by way of the Word of God and the witness of the Holy Spirit through His saints, many of those who suffered greatly down through the centuries. Those that want to throw all that aside, they want to throw spiritual authority aside and the authority of the local church and do their own thing, we have to withdraw ourselves. They're a danger to the church. Those that are brothers living like this, we've got to withdraw ourselves so God can deal with them. 1 Corinthians 3.13 Every man's work shall be made manifest, but they shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. The day will declare it. God knows. And just as that Son of Man on the cloud can take that scythe and with a fine cut between wheat and tares to separate the wheat from the tares, something we can't do, we have to be very careful. The day will declare who was true and who was false. People that fancy themselves against racism will suddenly discover that they themselves are racist. Some of the worst of all. Some that fancy themselves followers of God and their word will suddenly see that they are blasphemers. Those that fancy themselves prophets of love suddenly realize at that judgment that they were preachers of hate. 
The Son of Man with His sharp sickle knows and He can do what we cannot. And the day will declare it. That's why we have to withdraw ourselves, stand on the Word of God, and let God deal with it. It's not a place to exact justice and vengeance. That's God's place. We should pray for it. We should declare the truth. We should channel our anger. There is a righteous anger. There's a zeal. The zeal of the Lord of hosts ate Christ up to where He turned over some tables in the temple. But we channel that into preaching, 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 preaching. Hell, fire, and brimstone. That's what this country needs. Hell, fire, and brimstone preaching. But here the sharp sickle, the scythe, can divide the wheat from the tares. It can divide the sword and the spirit. I mean the soul and the spirit, just like is referred to as the, the Word of God is described in Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to finish up here. Verse 15. So we have the Son of Man on a white cloud, having his, a golden crown, his head a sharp sickle. This is Christ. Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, which is the Son of Man. Thrust in thy sickle and reap. For the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So there's a harvest, and this Son of Man takes that sharp, takes that sharp sickle, and He harvests the earth. He gathers the wheat. What is this talking about? Who is this, who is this angel that comes out? So we have an angel come out of the temple. He's coming out of the temple in heaven and tells the Son of Man, go ahead and reap, it's time. We lack in Revelation, you go back to chapter 11, verse 14, the second woe ends, and then in verse 15, you have an angel, the seventh angel, blows the seventh trumpet. Okay? This seventh angel blows the seventh trumpet, and then in verse 19 of chapter 11, it says the doors of the temple in heaven fling open. And then we have this parenthesis all the way down to the end of chapter 14. This angel that comes out of the temple, if we go back in the chronology, is associated with the seventh trumpet, which we'll find is the seven vile judgments, and it's asso he's associated with the temple. So this could be the seventh angel that blows the seventh trumpet and tells the Son of Man it's time to reap. If this is true then this reaping, this harvest is not connected with the rapture. It would be connected with the tribulation saints just mentioned in verse 13. That's possible. Some have even taught that there's kind of a second rapture at the end of the tribulation that involves the tribulation saints. I don't believe that's accurate because these saints in verse 13 are told to go ahead and die in the Lord. They're not, they're not told to wait for Him to deliver. They, they die in the Lord. Or if we look further back in Scripture, the rapture is associated with the command or the voice of an angel. Somebody read uh, Jason, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. So when the Son of Man comes to get His church, there's an angel involved. 1, Corinthians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Amen. When the Lord descends to get His church, it's upon the voice of the archangel. I believe this other angel in verse 15 is the archangel that says it's time. 
And then what does the Son of Man do? He goes and he reaps the harvest. Could be the seventh angel, could be the archangel. I'm not going to take a dogmatic position. But this makes sense when I consider interpreting Scripture with Scripture. It says in verse 16, the harvest of the earth is right. Remember Jesus talked about looking out on the fields. They're white unto harvest and pray that the Lord would raise up laborers to go into the harvest. The harvest imagery is associated with the church and the saints. It says 16, and he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. The harvest was reaped. Exactly what Jesus talks about in John 4, labors, the harvest is ready. And now the Son of Man gathers it. If you go and look at the second gathering we're going to get into next time, I'm not going to go past this verse, you see that the agencies of the reaping are different. In this reaping, it's the Son of Man at the voice of the archangel. In the second reaping of the grapes, it's an angel with a, a scythe. It's not, it's, not, it's not the Son of Man. And we also see that there is no corresponding feature of wrath here that we see very clearly delineated with the gathering of the grapes. The grapes are harvested and then it says they're cast into the winepress of the wrath of God. Here we're just told that the harvest is reaped. So I believe we have a contrast here. This is a reaping or a gathering unto salvation, a subtle reference to the rapture of the church that we see prefigured in John in chapter 4 verse 1 and what we see Paul clearly describing in 1 Thessalonians 4 involving the voice of the archangel. So what we basically have summarized here in, 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 in these reapings is a point prior to the tribulation all up to the tribulation sandwiched on both sides uh, all the way up through the, to the end sandwiched on both sides by gatherings God's work of judgment is sandwiched between two gatherings two reapings reaping of the wheat into his barn and the reaping of the tares to be burned the reaping of the grapes to be trodden underfoot I believe the, we're, we're at the end of a parenthesis in the book of Revelation that pans all of human history it looks back to the rapture here and looks forward to Armageddon. And then as we get into subsequent chapters, we're going to see that second gathering, that second uh, reaping, the winepress, detailed in terms of exactly what it looks like. The church is the great harvest. The tribulation saints that are invited to die in the Lord, they're the gleanings. They're like what Ruth was able to walk through the field and get after it had been harvested. The church is the great harvest. And when the, when the harvest is reaped by the Son of Man and gathered to meet the Lord in the air, then all hell's going to break loose on this earth because there is no more restrainer. There is no more Holy Spirit in the same ministry upon which He ministers in the days of the New Testament church. I'll end there today. Next time we'll uh, go through verse 16 through 20 and we'll look at the reaping of the vintage. We have the wheat harvest and then we have the reaping of the vine of the earth, the grapes, and the treading of that vine. The wrath of God. God's wrath is like a wine press where the grapes are trodden. And the, and the, the, grape, the juice that comes out is a picture of the blood that will be splattered. That second reaping, when Christ comes back 
at Armageddon to make things right. Make no mistake, it's a bloody affair. It's a bloody affair. It's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We used to have a bumper sticker on our RV as we traveled across America preaching the gospel. It said, Jesus Christ is coming back. And boy, is He mad. Amen. That's an understatement. We'll look at a couple passages from Isaiah that describe what we see here at the end of chapter 14 with the vintage, almost word for word the same. These are not new doctrines in Revelation. They shouldn't be that easy to understand because it's all over the Old Testament. God's consistent. What we see here in Revelation is the prophetic fulfillment of the same prophecies that were uttered long before the Messiah was ever born. Further proof that the apostles uh, uh, were given knowledge by the Spirit of God concerning things to come, just like Jesus said they would be uh, before He left them and returned to heaven. So I'll go back. Let's just close on the, this note. I'll go back. Let's close in prayer. And let's close with these words of General Robert E. Lee. We poor sinners need to come back from our wanderings to seek pardon through the all-sufficient merits of our Redeemer. And we need to pray earnestly by the, for the power of the Holy Spirit to give us precious revival in our hearts and among the unconverted. Today, my friends, is not the, days of, the day of judgment we're reading about. That day could be tomorrow, but it's not today. Today's a day of salvation. And let's be those that humble ourselves and repent for the sins of our nation. We need to repent for the sins of our nation because we're just as guilty. We're being silent. And let's pray for revival. Let's pray for awakening and reprieve just like God gave Nineveh from the king all the way down to the lowliest servant. And Jonah was shocked. Never expected that to happen. He even got a little bit jealous about it. God had to teach him a hard lesson. Let's pray for these things. From the king all the way down to the lowliest uh, American citizen. A revival. In our hearts and among the unconverted. That's all we can do right now. Channel our anger into the gospel and wait patiently for God's justice. For it will be Swift, a true, terrible, and swift sword. Far beyond anything this world has ever seen and calls for the righteous to rejoice. Let's look for Christ, that harvest. It could be any time. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time to reflect upon your word. I trust you use it in some way, Lord. Um, I pray you bless our food. Lord, we pray for our country that you would have mercy upon us, Lord, that you would bring a spiritual revival and an awakening that's built upon the truth, not upon ecumenism and interfaith gatherings, but upon the truth of your word, Lord, that you would bring repentance and salvation from the top of the chain, from the president all the way down to the lowliest uh, and poorest amongst us, just like you did in the days of Nineveh. You didn't stay her judgment. Her judgment came and she was washed, uh, washed away into the sands, just a ruin today. And your judgment came, but you granted reprieve, Lord. And we pray you would do that here. Help us to be instruments of the gospel, Lord. Um, and if anything fans flames, may it be the truth of the gospel and not, not protesting, Lord, but that we'd be preachers and, and pray for those that go out and preach and that we would see these difficult times as unique opportunities that others have had in history, Lord, and, 
in and through that, you brought many people into the kingdom. So we pray for that. We pray you'd strengthen the churches, Lord, that uh, you'd strengthen them to speak what is right. And for those that have been silent, that they will no longer be silent. And that we would stick together and uh, pray for one another in the body of Christ and be loyal to one another and help one another and stand by one another in our sufferings. And so, Lord, we ask this week that you would uh, bless our comings and our goings and that we would soberly uh, watch tomorrow as you, uh, as we see signs in the heavens, things that your word talked about. I don't know exactly what it means, but it's an amazing thing. It's a testimony to your greatness and that we would look at it with sobriety, Lord, knowing that these things often throughout history have, have um, foreshadowed judgment and we certainly deserve your judgment. Have mercy upon us, Lord, and thank you for the escape we can have in this church body and for the people that are here, Lord, that we can come and fellowship and find refuge from the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.